You're listening to Women's Waves, a podcast by Vancouver Rape Relief and Women's Shelter. My name is Salona Kanu. Thank you for listening. This is part two of a two-part series on reproductive rights around the world. If you haven't heard part one yet, you should go listen to conversations I had with feminist activists in Brazil, Ireland, and Northern Ireland. When I was putting together the content for this podcast series, I got in touch with Carol Downer and was so blown away hearing about all of her contributions to the feminist movement, in particular the reproductive rights movement, that we decided to bring Carol to Vancouver. We hosted an event with her showcasing her work in September, and so this gave me the incredible opportunity to sit down with Carol in person. Here's our conversation. Can you tell me about uh, how you got started in your activism for women's bodily autonomy? Yes. I. I heard in a little news um, newscast that the Nell women were picketing uh, the Capitol, the White House, mm-hmm. and I thought that was so fantastic and great. Um, I was at work at the time, and um, you know I thought I've got to find these women, so I did, and I went to a Nell meeting, mm-hmm. and. It was mostly professional women, and other than working this part-time job, because um, I had kids at home, so I was just earning extra money. I, um, you know, wondered what I was doing there. You know, I mean, I didn't have that much to contribute. They, mm-hmm. they had all these different committees about uh, concerning professional women and their concern, mm-hmm. and here I was, a housewife. So they, I noticed that the one committee that they had was the abortion committee. Well, I had had an illegal abortion, so I felt that was something that, you know, I did have some something to contribute. Mm-hmm. And I was very lucky because the woman that was the chair of the committee, where there was only three of us on the committee, um, was Lana Phelan. And Lana had written a book on um, the abortion handbook. And she was just brilliant, a very wonderful speaker, uh, tons of information. And so I, as part of being on the committee, you know, I tagged around with her and took notes mm-hmm. when she gave presentations. Because at that time, there was a lot of interest and we were getting a lot of speaking engagements. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I became fairly knowledgeable uh, about you know, the politics of it uh, through Lana. But the other member of the committee, Mary Petrinovich, um, lived in Riverside, which is a sub, uh, you know, another county. And, but she came into Los Angeles um, and one of the things that she did was to uh, give a transportation to women from the university there at Riverside uh, that needed abortions because she knew an illegal abortionist. Mm-hmm. So she invited me to come over where to the place, you know, the office of the abortionist, and so that she and I could talk. Uh, you know, about committee business. So I went over and, you know, got acquainted with uh, the fact that there was this service involved, and she knew the guy, and um, his name was Carmen, Dr. Carmen, or at least he called himself a doctor. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so, you know, I started hanging out there with her, and um, at one point, she said, you know, Carol, it's not that hard to do early abortion. Uh, you know, Harvey, we called him Harvey, 
has in, he's invented this device that is much simpler, and um, it doesn't even need to be plugged in. It's just a handheld syringe. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think we could do it, and then, you know, we could have an abortion clinic ourselves. Uh, now, at that time, he was being, um, he had been arrested, and he was being charged, you know, with uh, doing abortions. Mm -hmm. And she said, instead of having this, you know, male um, hero, you know, we could have the clinic, and then if we got arrested, then at least it would be, you know, women that would be um, able to get our message out. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a very good idea. So mm -hmm. <laughs> she and I and a, a few other women that had sort of... Um, in order to understand where these women came from, um, Harvey was, there was a lot of publicity, and people did sometimes come to support the clinic by um, carrying signs out in front or something to support him. And, um, and they would talk to each other, and so it was a very informal way of getting to know each other. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, but about five or six of us did start to do this. I was at this very small little storefront that Harvey used as an abortion clinic with Mary, and as we're talking, um, she started walking into the other room, and this is where a patient was getting um, an IUD. And I just tagged along after her because we were in the middle of our conversation. Mm -hmm. And as we walked into this very small room, um, I looked in, and here was this woman lying on the table. Uh, this Beckett was in, and I could see her cervix. It, you know, the light was shining on it. I had never seen a cervix. I had no idea. And it was wonderful. I was, I was totally um, shocked and, and happy and, and, you know, actually, um, I almost fainted. I was that overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. uh, because remember, I had been studying under Lana about how uh, many abortions were done illegally and all of the uh, women dying, and how difficult it was for us to find an abortionist. Mm -hmm. And I looked at this perfectly simple, beautiful cervix, less than three inches away from the opening, and it, 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 the, the shock of realizing how we, our lives were being co-controlled and um, you know, damaged when this information was so readily available and so uh, accessible. So accessible, literally as well. Really yeah. <laughs> accessible. And, and it, it just floored me. Um, so after the um, experience, I took a speculum home with me, and I thought, well, I want to see my own cervix. Here I had six children, mm -hmm. and I'd never seen my cervix. Well, it took a while, but I did. Well, that was, you know, made me very happy, of course, uh, but it also um, came up at a later point, because we had, uh, you know, about how important it is to know about your cervix, is that we held a meeting and we put out a little notice um, in the local women's newspaper and we weren't very clear about what we were wanting to talk about, but somehow people got the message and realized it was about abortion. Mm -hmm. And so they, they came to this women's bookstore in Venice. And each of us on our committee had a, a separate part of the program. And my part was to explain the equipment 
very simple little device. And the women were very interested to hear about it because we had told them that, you know, we wanted to enlist them in this effort to start a women's clinic. And they were very um, for it. Uh, So they're, you know, were very receptive and willing to hear it. But as I began to, you know, handle the equipment, explaining about how the um, cannula went into the os and then of the cervix and then how you took the syringe and retracted it and so forth. I looked around the room and the women were very upset. I could see by their expressions that, um, you know, all they'd ever heard about was, you know, women dying from illegal abortions and I'm telling them this this little contraption <laughs> that we're going to use. Mm-hmm. And um, I realized, well, they, they, they just don't understand how uh, accessible and you know easy this is. And we're not being irresponsible and, you know, to be thinking about doing this. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, if you're interested, I, uh, let me show you, um, you know, what a cervix is like. And um, I walked into the next room, and there was a, a desk. And I <clears throat> got up on the desk. I had a, a long dress on it at that time. And so, you know, the skirt, I just pulled, got on the desk, lay back, and pulled the skirt back. <laughs> and since I wasn't wearing patties, I, I just put in the speculum. And <laughs> I, I had, you know, showed them. <laughs> and I thought, wow, they're... Who knows <laughs> what they're going to think of this woman just lying back and <laughs> spreading her legs. <laughs> but in fact, they loved it. And they all came over and started asking questions and talking and sharing experiences with each other. And, you know, that was the self help clinic was born right there. group did form you said that that was like the beginning of it that night and when the group did form um can you tell me a little bit about what formation you and the other women worked in or grouped in Mm -hmm. so was it a collective did you have a hierarchy and why did you choose to work in that kind of formation and what were the possibilities or the limitations Mm um when we well when we first you know, right after that, we decided that um, how important this educational aspect of, of it was. And at that very moment, um, an abortion clinic had o- opened in town, um, or it wasn't an abortion clinic, it was a hospital, actually. It's a small industrial hospital. And um, in the, um, you know, part of town, you know, with the factories and so forth. So the need for abortion was being met. And so the reason for our forming kind of wasn't as important to do that because we thought if we do get arrested, women will say, well, why did you do that? We can already get an abortion, um, you know, legally. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, why, why was it necessary? And we didn't think we would get the same kind of public support. But we knew that seeing your cervix was really uh, uh, more important uh, from the standpoint of how it helped women to understand, you know, not only how to do abortion, but also how to deal with just ordinary health conditions. Uh, So we started meeting, you know, and holding little self-help clinics. And as women um, joined in, it became, um, we branched out, we started traveling and so forth. So at that point, um, we were um, very loosely organized. We we didn't have any hierarchy. Um, Just everybody was pitching in and and doing it. And we hadn't really given much thought to organization per se. 
Mm-hmm. And we didn't, um, we weren't established yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, um, since abortion had become available, uh, we started an abortion referral service so that women would come to our women's center where we had a room and we would examine them and um, determine, you know, the length of pregnancy and so forth and counsel them about what an abortion is. And then we would accompany them. So at that point we were, you know, more organized and we did work in a collective fashion. Mm -hmm. Uh, We didn't have a hierarchy per se. Um, Then after Roe v. Wade, which took place about a year later, um, of course we established a clinic. Now when you do that, you have to be very well organized because you have to get a state clinic license. We were incorporated. Um, We had to deliver health care, you know, in a way that, you know, was very you know, sort of bureaucratized. I mean, we had to have procedures and that we followed and so forth, you know, just to make sure that we had the quality of care. Uh-huh. Uh, so that did put us into a somewhat more um, formal type of organization. Um, we operated collectively in terms of decision-making, uh, but we did have to allocate different roles to people. And that, of course, um, you know, makes a more complex mm-hmm. organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we we were committed to consensus, for example, mm-hmm. which means if you have to get everybody to agree, um, it may take a long time, you know. So we had meetings that went into the night, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, seeing as how we all had families and children and so forth, that gets complicated. You mm-hmm. know? Uh, and those of us that didn't have families certainly had significant others that were, you know, not uh, happy to see us be delayed. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, um, but it, so it's very difficult mm-hmm. to to do it to do that. Yeah. Uh, so that's kind of one of the limitations that. Um, we know as well, working in a collective here yeah. in Vancouver, that it is a, it can be a timely process, like yeah. you said, to have everyone reach consensus. Um, but what did you see as um, the benefit of working collectively? Why, like, why did you strive for that um, over just maybe giving in and saying, okay, I'll be the boss. <laughs> I'll make the decisions from now on. It will be easier. Yeah. Um, well, of course we were, um, I, I think we really took it almost as a given that we'd, we'd be collective, mm-hmm. uh, because that, that was part of being in the movement, mm-hmm. was to do away with hierarchies. Yeah. You know, we all recognized that hierarchies were exactly what we were trying to, you know, overcome, mm-hmm. you know, these because we were always at the bottom as women <laughs> yeah. of any hierarchy. Um, so, you know, we didn't ever consciously say we we're going to be a collective. Uh, we just kind of assumed it. Um, and as, as we um, did become more complex, it became more difficult. But we stuck to it because um, we just felt strongly that every woman uh, had an equal part, mm-hmm. and that every woman's ideas were uh, equally uh, important for us to hear, um, and that once we did reach a decision, uh, that it was a good, solid decision, mm-hmm. and that we were all behind. Mm-hmm. And I, I think uh, that the effort paid off. I think we ran the clinic very efficiently. One thing we did at our uh, our meetings, is that we prepared a, a report in preparation, and we called it, uh, you know, our vital signs. And we kept track, you know, of every, all the mail that came in, that was part of the meeting, was that we would make co- copies of incoming, important in, incoming letters, mm-hmm. 
Um, and we kept track of all of the women that we saw, all of the public relations um, events, uh, media presentations, um, any of the events that we took place at the clinic. Mm -hmm. that, so that every member of the collective would know everything that happened every week, just on this one page. You know, the income we got, because we, we paid ourselves um, according to however much money we had. And so we had kind of like set salaries, but then we would have a percentage of, of it, uh, hopefully 100%, but mm -hmm. <laughs> if we didn't make that much money that, that week, it would maybe be 50% or yeah. 75 um, so that we were, you know, we, we really had the principle of every woman having all of the information because, and I think this made us incredibly effective uh, because everybody had the same knowledge base mm -hmm. uh, to work on. The way that you just talked now about um, how grouping with women and coming up with strategies um, it gave me a, a sense of pride, I guess, about how we operate in um, our own organization, not just with our collective, because that is us grouping as women, but also when, um, I just want to share this with you, but also when we, uh, when women call us, like mm -hmm. I, I think I explained to you yesterday that we always work with uh, two um, collective members, there'll mm -hmm. always be two of us, so the first time that a woman comes to meet us after calling us is the first time that she's grouping with other women. And that is like, we use it as a way to group and strategize together how we're going to all work together to respond to the violence that's been uh, perpetrated against yeah. her. Um, so it's, it's trying to break down the, I guess, barrier of like service and you're a client, like we're a service and you're a client. Yeah. We're just regular women and we're going to meet together and follow your lead on what you want to do and help you in whatever way that we can. You know, we, we really try to stick with that. The group um, is, is the best response to, exactly. to what's being done against it's, us. It's yeah. organic, mm -hmm. you know, that's what you're saying is, that, yeah. um, you know, not thinking of just always what law do we need to pass or mm -hmm. what, um, you know, it's, it's coming out of the actual um, unity of women together mm -hmm. to, to, to solve problems and from that emerges the strategies. Yeah, because it is, um, I guess, like anti-individualist and it also breaks isolation. The similarities and the differences between when you were active or when you started being active rather because you haven't stopped <laughs> <laughs> right um, when you when you started in the late 60s early 70s and now what do you see in terms of the context of activism and also the strategies in women's resistance well it's terrible <laughs> I have to sum it up in one word, uh, is that um, there have been a tremendous backlash against uh, women and um, also um, in the larger picture against all of us uh, because um, our, to put it in the, how, how do I say it in the shortest way here, is it basically the wealthy people in our society, and not just our society, but around the world, mm -hmm. really have um, uh, taken over. And I mean, this is under this new economic system that they call, you know, neoliberalism. And this has very effectively made it difficult for all groups to get together, uh, labor unions, um, any kind of, you know, political parties that want to change things are going to find themselves very handicapped because of 
these um, econo economic measures, which uh, basically have destroyed the unions and uh, made it very difficult for people to um, get, you know, have pensions or any kind of security. Mm -hmm. And so we have uh, it just, it has made movement work and activism far, far more difficult. Mm -hmm. Well, we did not really recognize that at the time. I mean, of course we were opposed to the cutbacks, you know, in welfare and uh, when Clinton, Bill Clinton in um, 1980, excuse me, 1999, uh, cut back welfare for women. Um, you know, we were very opposed to it on a, on a social justice uh, basis, uh, but I think we were not uh, really aware of the ways that it was harming our ability to organize mm -hmm. and how to experience the world. Uh, it was people were forced into just kind of scrambling to survive with all these, um, uh, you know, layoffs and people becoming working part-time and taking away any employee benefits, um, you know, very difficult to get insurance, health insurance, very expensive. All of those things worked to uh, make us individualistic, and the idea that every everyone, you know, had to just scramble to do what they could do, and start little businesses, um, everything became more commercialized. Like you, uh, in the women's health movement, for example, today, um, we have a lot of women, and they're doing good work. I don't want in any way to imply or impugn them. Uh, however, they are forced to do it as, as like a little business, mm -hmm. you know, and um, that creates a whole different dynamic, uh, you know, that it is just like this woman may get the inspiration of, um, you know, selling some kind of uh, birth control product, you know, a fertility awareness thing. Um, and then she's the boss. And uh, it doesn't, um, I, I don't think anyone becomes tyrannical or, or, or in, in that sense. I think it's out of necessity. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, nevertheless, um, it puts us back into this um, capitalistic mode and also this hierarchical and authoritarian. Mm -hmm. Uh, like, for example, in self-help, we found that, um, you know, a lot of the stuff that we're taught about our bodies is, is just pure hokum. Uh, you know, the so-called menstrual, 28-day, you know, menstrual cycle. You know, how did they come up with that? It, it, they just came up with it uh, with very inadequate data. It's, a, it's an art, you know, when we actually started comparing notes and things, a lot of those facts were, you know, very uh, uh, authoritarian and, and arrived at maybe by studies of, you know, some guy, you know, just asked his nurses to wear pedometers while they worked and then wrote up a study on how active we are in a day or something, you know, really shoddy. And um, yet, when you put women into the position of, you know, owning a little business or something, people start treating them like an authority. Mm -hmm. And I've been to some, you know, conferences and I've heard some presentations where, um, you know, maybe a woman selling her, her products and then people ask her, well, um, how, what do I do about that? Well, you should do this and you should do that. And they just fall back into that whole idea of giving advice and uh, or even orders and we as the audience we do the same the audience you know accepts that mm -hmm. instead of working together to 
and, and to be more sharing and to say, well, you know, you might find this helpful or whatever. It becomes, well, you should do this. So it, it has a profound effect. Mm-hmm. Um, So also, Carol, over the last uh, two days that we've been spending some time together, we've had so many uh, wonderful discussions about um, how race and class affect um, women's access to reproductive rights and women's bodily autonomy. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Um, Yes, I think, um, you know, we when we approached what to do to make the, our, control our bodies, um, the idea is to enable every woman to make whatever uh, choice that she wants to regulate it, but also to make sure that it's a real choice. Uh, and today, unfortunately, uh, due to race and class, um, those choices are often not not real. Uh, for example, you know, low-income women, and which frequently um, a large percentage of those who are are you know of color. Um, that choice is very determined by uh, the fact that they you know can't afford to have a child or. Uh, they can't, you know, make a good life for that child in some way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so really, um, we have to go deeper than just giving quote unquote choice. Mm-hmm. We have to make sure that um, we are changing the actual underlying conditions that um, determine what those choices are, and then besides. You know, the, uh, I mean, and you can look at this from a social justice um, perspective, which is what I just expressed, but there is an even deeper perspective, and that is the big political picture, and that is that um, the, our um, international picture is that for the last what, 500 years, uh, the white, um, predominantly English-speaking world has, you know, ruled. And the other nations have been kept at a, a, lo- a lower position. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the, of the, the Europeans. Uh, that is changing nowadays, I think, um, seen the rise of uh, Asia and that there is more power you know shared um, and eventually probably it may change significantly but right this minute um, a lot of the um, choices of women in all the world really especially um, I'm gonna say the United States Europe and all of the countries that are in an inferior, dependent position, uh, the global south, I guess, that um, we are, we as women, are being manipulated through their programs, and who gets birth control, and under what circumstances, and where abortion is legal, or where it isn't, or whatever, uh, to basically maintain this uh, position of the, you know, the white power structure, uh, and I know it <laughs> sounds very grandiose, but it's very real. And um, for example, uh, the population control programs that are in the global south, uh, due to their position uh, economically, these world organizations like the World. Uh, bank and uh, International Monetary Fund and so forth um, have forced these countries who are in debt, uh, have national debt, 
to accept these um, population control programs. And, you know, the idea being to cut down the population. Now, some people can say, yes, we need to do that because of the population explosion. Uh, but, you know, there is another approach, you know, to the problems of more people, and some of that is like changing our consumption patterns, things like that. That, But instead, they're just t putting in these programs that carry these dangerous methods of birth control. I mean, for example, like in, it was Uganda, um, the Planned Parenthood there closed down. Well, that was, you know, too bad in one way as far as uh, Planned Parenthood, but they didn't provide for the women that had these long-acting methods, you know, these implantations. When they left, what are these women supposed to do? You know, with these devices in their body that, um, you know, they didn't have the means to, to get uh, taken out if they wanted it, you know, and, or if there were complications, who did they go to? Uh, so there, these programs are really, um, what shall I say, they're not uh, monitored and, and by anyone, but they're just out there um, well, they're out there, but basically they are harming the health of the women of that country. Now, reverse that and come to the United States where they, they're threatening to take away abortion. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, we might all think, oh, this is because um, the conservatives are taking over. Uh, well, that's part of the story. But the real story is that um, white women in America are not having enough babies. And that is very disturbing to the people that want to carry forth this, you know, imperialist white culture that they need to maintain this global hegemony. And so uh, it, it, it's very ironic because while on one hand the impact of illegal abortion will hit the women of color much harder, the taking away of choice will affect the white women. So it's, it's that all women are under the gun. Mm -hmm. It's just that using their overview of what they want to accomplish, mm -hmm. you know, it, it furthers their goal of getting more white dominance. Mm -hmm. And this is what we found in our studies mm -hmm. and contact with them. You've touched on it a little bit there, and I know you've mentioned it over the last couple of days that you're quite critical of um, the current overuse of birth control. So whether it be birth control pills or IUDs that are being given to women, um, but if if women are not using those to protect themselves against unwanted pregnancy, what should we be using? What are the other options? Um, well, actually, the news is very good in that respect, that there are quite, well, there are a number of other ways of approaching, you know, limiting your fertility. Uh, and they don't necessarily involve knowing your body any better or, you know, doing self-help. I mean, that, of course, is always the best, but you can just walk into a, a facility and have someone help you with it to provide diaphragms. And these, by the way, these methods are equally effective to any of the hormonal methods, such as the pill or the implant or injection. You know, those, they, they give us a false um, information 
where they uh, talk about the effectiveness use, uh, or excuse me, correct myself, they talk about the use effectiveness of methods uh, or, the, the, or the ideal. Well, the theoretical or ideal birth control or birth control pill wins hands down. But when you talk about the actual use, no, it doesn't. I worked in an abortion clinic. I can't tell you how many women come in because it, the pill didn't work. Either because they were on a, a relationship and then it ended and they didn't see any point in taking a pill when they weren't having sex, and then they met someone. You know, that happens. Mm -hmm. um, or it, it just has a failure rate. Women that took it every day and just exactly the way they're supposed to take it, uh, it still has its certain amount of failure. Uh, so comparing that use to a diaphragm or to a cervical cap or to foam or to, um, you know, um, well, of course, the condom, but we all know that that's uh, got its limitations for sure. Mm -hmm. um, but there are these other ways are also very effective, and they don't put a chemical into your body, and they don't um, cause you to get depressed, and you know run a risk of of dying. I mean that that's the whole thing is they don't there there is no chance of dying from using a diaphragm. Mm -hmm. And with the pill, it's very small, but it's very real. And if you've ever sat in a room with parents of, whose daughters died from using the birth control pill, which I have, um, you understand that it's, it's very real. And, you know, so I think um, these, these pills are, they, the one reason women accept them is because they need to have some protection, and they, that's all they're being offered. But if we, uh, as women, demand more, and sometimes it can be on an individual basis, if you shop around, there are people that are offering these methods, particularly methods like the diaphragm or the female condom. Uh, you can get them at, the, at your uh, provider. Um, so I, that's my suggestion. What would your message to young activists be? Find yourself the closest person, the closest woman who, you know, aspires to you know, be a feminist and, and, and get together with women and become a friend and find others and start groups and start whatever your particular um, aspiration is or project you want to start. Bring in women and uh, get it going uh, because uh, that's the only thing that's going to make any difference. Um, we can change laws, but as we can see, they can always change those laws back. Mm -hmm. But if we build our own unity, which we have, now I gotta say, it's not, I may say that like it's just so simple, it's not simple. Mm -hmm. And one of the things is that we do have differences amongst us. You know, we have different races, we have different classes, different backgrounds, and those things matter, and they do. Uh, affect, you know, how um, life affects each of, of that oppression. Mm -hmm. And we have to deal with that. That's almost our very first step is to um, welcome uh, feedback from other women that says, you know, uh, that hurt my feelings or or you excluded me, or you didn't seem to listen when I spoke, or you're not aware. You know, we just have to start doing that and start saying, well, tell me more. You know, because those are realities and they are uh, potential barriers to our being able to work together. Because all, although we have more in common than we have difference, we have 
on a daily basis, we have to deal with these actual real differences too. So I guess the, the take-home message is gr grouping, uh, unity, collectivity, and sisterhood. Correct. Thank Great. you for saying that. <laughs> That's really Wonderful. It. Thank you so much, Carol. And that's it for part two of the two-part series on reproductive rights. Stay tuned for more radical feminist content. Women's Waves is produced in Vancouver, Canada by Vancouver Rape Relief and Women's Shelter. You can find our episodes on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, Mixcloud, and our website, rapereliefshelter.bc.ca. What you're hearing is our theme song. It's called Sisterhood, and it's created by Music Liberatory.